0: Hi, and welcome to Talk of the Hound, a new podcast by theaterhound Theaterhound is a unique new theatre website launching this year, which looks at the art and business of theatre from a multitude of angles. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and today my guest is Gordon Dahlquist. Gordon is a playwright and novelist, a native of the Pacific Northwest. He's been living and writing in New York City since 1988. His debut novel was published in 2006 to critical acclaim. It's The Glass Books of the Dream Eaters. He made that the first of a trilogy of Victorian sci-fi novels. His plays have been performed in New York and Los Angeles, and his latest, called *Veil vale Widow Conspiracy*, just debuted in May at Next Door at New York Theater Workshop. Well, that's not um, Hi, Gordon. Hi. Uh, so great to have you here with us. Um, I uh, recently saw your play Veal-Widow Conspiracy, which I loved. Actually, I don't have to gas you up on air, but you know, no, I did. Um, that, so. <laughs> we usually start off, I just ask you a little bit about where you're coming from as an artist, how you got into the biz, what you do. Um, so you can sort of speak um, I, freely about that.
1: I uh, My family is a military family. We've moved all around, but my family was all, always centered in Oregon and I went to college in, Oregon, in Portland, and uh, stayed there for about five or six years working at a couple of small theater companies, mainly as a director, and then went to grad school in New York City, uh, to Columbia uh, as a playwright, and then have just sort of stayed in New York, chipping away since then, uh, doing plays, and then about 15 years ago uh, took some time off of theater and wrote a few novels and uh have in the last four or five years uh been more pretty much focused on maybe I'm more like six years uh really more focused on on plays again. Mm-hmm. Um so uh yeah so uh, and Veil vale Widow um came out of uh uh, it was written in the uh, Club Thumb writing group, uh, run by Maria Stryer. And uh, uh, once I sort of got about halfway through writing it and realized that the that the cast was going to be predominantly Asian, uh, I had a drink with Mia Katigbach, who is someone I've known at Columbia, from, by way of Columbia, for... A really long time since the early 90s where we both had day jobs there after grad school and mia was just actually starting
0: natco and natco is the national asian-american theater company founded in 1989 by mia Katigbach and richard ing they do one of three types of production a classic play with an asian-american cast a classic play adapted by an asian-american writer or a world premiere play by a non-asian writer featuring an asian-american cast and Gordon's play, The Veil Widow Conspiracy, falls into the latter category.
1: It was mainly an actor, uh, but we would like meet each other in the halls and have coffee and just kind of keep up. Um, So I brought the play to her and just thought, you know, she was the person I knew in town who could, who who would have actors Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, good actors. And she was really... She was really responded to it and was very interested. And they have a, I mean, the, the what I think is a fascinating thing about Natco is it's not they do a, they do some original plays, but their brief is really um, to give Asian actors opportunities to play a much wider range of parts than the commercial theater is going to do them, you know, offer them. So they're you know, the show before mine, they had done a six-hour. Two three part adaptation of all three Henry the plays, so with a fully Asian with a fully cast. Asian cast, yeah. um, and one of my a couple of the actors in in Veil Widow Conspiracy were in in that show, so I got to know them there, um, and uh, and this so this play is Veil Widow is more is probably a little bit more of a. It's maybe I don't I don't know quite the right word I mean it's a little bit. It's not strictly speaking a downtown play, but it's a, it's it's a more sort of meta theatrical play. Uh, it's maybe a slightly more textually dense than the shows they normally do. Um, so it was a so I think everyone there th- and the actors thought like oh this is this is great. This is the kind of thing we don't normally get a crack at. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's you know let's throw ourselves at it. And it was a and it was a really good fit. I thought the, I think the, the company. Uh, I was really
0: happy with everything they did, I was really well, well, I would say that no one really gets a crack at things like this because there 's not really <laughs> things like this you right. know, in some ways
1: well i i mean if i will if i will yeah if I can characterize my writing in in the world of new york city it is it is tricky in that I write plays that are for la- the, one way of looking at them is that they are slightly more european uh in that Really, traditionally, I think American writers have written about families, yeah. uh, and and really written from the point of view of character. And my plays probably operate more from the point of view of uh, of both theatricality, but also probably of a, a, you know, a sort of social political frame of what what things are being talked about. Um, uh, so, on one hand. In New York, they have always uh, been the da- the downtown theater, which is more open to the form of of experimentation that I'm interested in, uh, has often been a little bit more rooted in, um, and I don't say this with any uh, pejorative edge to it at all, but more sort of identity politics and particular sort of social, uh, sort of social angle of social change. Uh, which my plays are a little a little more distracted from that, a little more abstract. Um uh and then on the other hand, uh the sort of uptown world my plays are just too weird. <laughs> uh they're a little too weird or they're a little too uh uh acrid or a little too violent or a little too something. Um they're not quite polite enough for that in a way. So they have been striding a kind of their sort of middle middle ground uh so it's usually they they find a purchase with people who are also um looking to do sort of more odd things honestly
0: yeah well you've already sort of gone into a question that i was going to ask you about and uh not in any type of accusatory way because i think when you talk about identity politics um for the viewers, I am a white man, and Gordon is also a white man, and we're, we're, I mean, we're talking about it. But you're, you're an American man writing a play full of almost exclusively Chinese or Chinese American characters, and I'm, I am really curious what kinds of research conversations, you know, influence your writing of those perspectives.
1: I mean, uh, it, it, the, the story. I, I, I'm not someone who writes with an outline, so the story, the play, for those. Who don't know it the the play is three made of three sort of nested narratives
0: oh yeah, um, give us this. I uh, sometimes do it in voiceover, but it'll be better coming from you
1: well it it it, it starts um the play starts uh in a you know Brook, Brooklyn of of ten or ten to twenty years from now um oh that it's that soon yeah I, I mean <laughs> it's post apocalyptic so that's I would, a little scary I would describe it I mean and I did describe this uh, again not to offend anybody um as you know imagine imagine the third term of Donald Trump, and what I really mean by that is imagine an an America where um i mean for for i mean dialing back during the two thousand and eight um, uh financial crisis, and then the sort of uh sort of weird brinksmanship that happened around whether we were going to deal with the debt ceiling or not deal with the debt ceiling, and there was a question of whether our bond ratings were going to be devalued. these are all things. That if they had happened to Argentina, it would have been a drastic fiscal calamity. Mm-hmm. And because the United States had robust institutions, everyone let this really ghastly behavior kind of slide because they trusted in the institutions mm-hmm. of the country. But I think as we see right now, um, those institutions are actually resting on uh, faith as much as anything else. And uh, if you take, if if you imagine that faith dissipating if you imagine eight more years or ten more years of no one paying attention to that faith you really get a country that you know an, an America without American exceptionalism where yeah no one is taking care of the infrastructure and the bridges are falling apart and the you know the financial uh, hierarchy the inequity gets stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched and and in the world of the play um, the characters are really frankly talking about China as the predominant world power, an economic power, and so you know, looking, looking to China as if someone in Mexico might be looking at the United States right now is like the place to emigrate, and the, and the and the sort of question about, what are you sacrificing? What are you not sacrificing? And
0: so when they're so. By the way, these these two characters who are in this twenty-year, ten-year future are Chinese American, they and they're sh- talking about how neither of them have been back.
1: Right, and and that sense of and both of them feeling very alienated from their own. What might be Chinese heritage, uh, but there's been a real dislocation, um, uh, and the and one one of them and and in the middle of this you 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 get you know you get power outages, uh, they're talking about whether they have clean water. There's a lot of sort of sketchy mm-hmm, circumstances. That's
0: what made I think the you, the audience wonders. You don't tell us what right, the time right. is, but that right. makes us wonder: is it fifty? Is it ninety? I mean, you know what is you it? You know
1: I what what a you know yes the someone was saying the other day um you know climate climate change may not be the most important question in everyone's mind in 2020 but it's it's certainly the most important question in everyone's mind in 2050 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and i think it's that it's that kind of thing where like the issues that we are not really paying attention to right now ask i mean fill in the gaps how many years before those become crucial issues and it's 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 in a point where those things are becoming yeah, though
0: the poll i saw last for democratic voters of course this is not for red voters but for democratic voters it's the number one issue yeah for I, the, and these primaries and which is as i think uh, is justified
1: as is yeah no that's really comforting
0: actually yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but so uh, the action the the sort of main action is one of the two people describing I mean, they're using, they're, you know, t- showing these DVD that they can't watch. Their little table is a, you know, a dislocated flat screen
0: TV. Because of the power outages? The power right? outages, yeah. and,
1: and yeah. You know, and is there internet, is there is mm-hmm. there a broadcast, is mm-hmm. there, you know, I, I think that, Plus, who again, has a DVD player anymore? Right, you know, I, my
0: computer doesn't have a drive. Right, no. right. <laughs> you know, you you it The technology you just, they, they iPhones don't give me an, a headphone adapter anymore, you no, know? No, it's, it's like, all
1: <laughs> good. I mean, it, that's all great because it, you're supposed to buy another thing, but if... Circumstances change and you can't buy another thing. It just means that that it's cut off. Yeah um, uh, And yes, what can we what what could we what what would we do if we no longer were in a, a networked space, you know I, I, I guess we would read books, do you know or right. if there's no power and there's no light We would describe books to each other and in this case someone is describing a movie that uh, he remembered watching when he was younger it's a big, splashy, kind of last emperor uh co-production between an American studio and the Chinese government set in Western China, this big historical epic from 1922 in Xinjiang, which is the far western province of China. And uh, it's called the Veil Widow Conspiracy. And it's called Conspiracy. Veil Widow Conspiracy. Yeah. And so, the, um, so they, start to, the, they start to describe the movie and sort of set the circumstances of the movie a bit and then we go we kind of plunge into the period movie and we get probably about 20 minutes half an hour of the movie uh and then that cuts into what we in the rehearsal were referring to as sort of the dvd extras scene which is a it's like commentary from a bunch of the filmmakers about the experience of making the movie in china
0: yeah my 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 guess at the time because the characters just come out and start answering questions that it's have not home, been asked. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. I thought it was like the Access Hollywood featurette. You know, you yeah. know, no, absolutely. <laughs> Ryan Seacrest does the interview with the director. Absolutely, of,
1: yeah. absolutely. And 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 then, and but in this section, there's a kind of a blur as the filmmakers are talking about their experience there, and and there's a kind of uh, a kind of transition where. They're also talking about what they're seeing in Western China and the kinds of influence, the kind of the kind of incidents are seeing the, the, the political situation and how that's sort of bleeding into what they're doing and and how they're not really clocking how the decisions they've made in the movie uh, can be read as a political commentary. And that at the end of that section, the Chinese government takes issue with a few things in the movie and shuts down the production and impounds the footage and basically grinds it all to a halt. Um, And then we have a sort of long, uh, very sort of concentrated scene in a hotel room between the producer and the director of the movie and the liaison from the cultural ministry trying to work out if there's any way that they can save and put back Mm -hmm. together the movie. And they, not spoiler, they reach a certain (laughs) kind of a compromise um, that tries to save everyone's face. Uh, And then we see sort of the conclusion of the movie... With those compromises in place, kind of playing through, mm-hmm. and then at the end we come back to the section in Brooklyn, uh, and the whole sort of overarching question of you know what constitutes a true story, what constitutes uh, reality, and why why what does it mean when we are investing in a story whether things are true or whether there's not true or no. what's the difference between factual truth or emotional truth, and 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 because we've watched the sausage being made about the movie we have a, a sort of different sense or a more, or more complicated sense of what kind of political compromises um, were going on uh, to affect what someone would just be viewing as story story elements or mm-hmm. a romantic mm-hmm. conclusion or a, or a something in any anyway so for me and I was really sensitive in talking about this with the, the NATCO and, and and also very much with the actors it's not the the plays, me writing this play is very much not about me trying to write about um, any any deep sense of Asian American experience. It's really about trying to talk about how we um, try to understand how art and representation tries to understand and deal with sort of socio-political seriousness and 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 what we can trust and when we can who we can trust it from and what how do we invest things with meaning and how, how much do we examine that process? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do we question uh, what touches us and, yeah. and why it might touch us? So those, I mean, it's those kinds of issues. And, and I think the circumstances in Xinjiang, um, and though it feels like it's a stretch, uh, I think this the pairing, looking, trying to look at something like what's happening in Xinjiang with trying to look at the movies and culture i don't think it is a stretch because because those kinds of cultural filters are how we are trying how they're the only way we're going to get a glimpse of these things happening on the other side of the world and um uh and as one of the two or three main world centers of story creation i think it it carries a certain burden on uh americans to to be maybe a little more aware or be a little more curious about what kinds of stories are we telling, what kind of what's a metaphor, what's not a metaphor, what's informed, what's not informed. Totally. Especially,
0: especially when our government is in a really fraught relationship with their government. And that is affecting so many like like U.S. farmers are going out of business because Trump has a little baby war that he wants to have with absolutely you know their government it's just like and we don't know shit about them and they know everything about us because they consume our art and stuff
1: right it is really it it is really fascinating i mean we yeah there's there's we uh, yeah there's so many so many stories but it it is um yeah i think i I think there's a we, we are we are so much more in contact with those people and that that those uh influences then in both directions than we're probably aware of and that we're probably examining. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I don't mean to say
0: that arrogantly, like, oh, they study us, we don't study them. No, no, but, no. But, you no, know, no, we no. are exporters culturally in a way that we are not importers. Right, you know?
1: right, right. And we are, uh, but, but, yeah, what, what we're doing not to offend, what we are doing to cultivate, what, I mean, the, the amount of money Netflix is spending trying to build a Chinese production studio right now Mm -hmm. uh and and what will be what and what that will actually mean i don't think anyone quite knows you know i mean uh so yeah those are i think those are all really interesting questions and they're very and they're all really political questions we think we understand what apple and google are as companies but they behave really differently when they're in china and to do business in china Mm -hmm. and as china becomes more powerful um who's to say that that the way they behave in China isn't going to be the norm of how their company behaves here or somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, like th- those kinds of questions I think are really natural in terms of the way history works. Um, they're less, w- th- we don't see ourselves as being subject to those kinds of historical processes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, th- I mean, I think it's a pretty, uh, I think it's a pretty accepted metric that, um, Towards the collapse of the Spanish Empire and the British Empire, around that time, um, in their sort of last period, they were spending something like half their uh, half their budget uh, on the military to sort of prop everything up and Mm -hmm. everything up. And Mm -hmm. what do you know? We are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so what happens next? Mm -hmm. You know. So there's again that that was part of the discussion of like how do we get to these room that room mm. at the beginning of the play and again there are a lot of historical precedents for the kinds of things that are in motion it's all happening much much faster yeah, and with really different modes of communication now so uh, but it's still
0: happening and um, yeah yeah and the way I understand it, America gained such power by being oceans away from the rest of the world. We could live here happily. And, with a and massive oceans don't of- exist anymore. You know, like, yeah. be- because of the internet. I mean, like, in, a, in an information age, what does it matter that right. there's a bunch of water?
1: No, absolutely. And we exist because we also had a massive amount of natural resources that we we could, you know, exploit. And, um, you know, again, that we, we were burning through a lot of those things and if
0: people are the resources now china has five times as many as
1: us absolutely
0: um this is this is a fascinating conversation about storytelling and about storytelling about storytelling that i think is a through line in so much work and especially theater i would say in the past i don't know decade or so Mm -hmm. um also happens to be that's the decade i've been paying attention so i'm not sure that (laughs) i have as much perspective as some um I'm thinking of different shows, one which your wife wrote, which is called Mr. Mr. Burns or the Post-Electric Play, which is about a group of post-apocalyptic survivors uh, recreating a Simpsons episode, um, which has very obvious parallels to the the two framing characters of this show. Um, I'm curious to talk about how you're in conversation with that, but also just this entire focus and fascination that we have in the theater about Storytelling and i mean I think some some theater is even more fetishized about theater itself than <laughs> this is. This is more about film and and storytelling and and uh at a larger whole um but I'm curious why that's a why that's a fascination for you or and if you have theories about why the culture at large is talking about it i
1: i mean i don't have any any big theories My, i mean I, I really enjoy the thing that I really enjoy about theater for lack of a better for lack of a better word um is how fake it is um theater that really embraces um well that really embraces theatricality that has you know sp- asides that has uh obvious obvious blunt transitions obvious um double ca- you know that uses double casting as a way as a sort of metaphoric line going through the play that uses that, you know, whatever, uses all the design elements to sort of do that sort of thing. For,
0: also, for, for what it's worth for listeners, the, this play, the set, is a big old lens around the action that's, it that's is, happening. It is.
1: And there, are, and there are many very fast costume changes and many very fast scene changes. Um, the, but also, I think it, there's something really particular to theater in the... I mean, this isn't any big insight uh, in our world right now in, in that it's one of the few places... Uh, where where people are in the same room together, um, and there is and 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 where what's happening is unique, and and people have talked about that for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But I think it is in our society now, with how how virtual our connections are, and how distant our connections are, or sort of, I mean, non geographic non geographic our connections are, um, the phenomenon of actually being in a room with a bunch of strangers, being going there explicitly to be told a story of one kind or another is um, is pretty remarkable but I also think it means that you can't help, I mean not that it's reverent in the same way but it is a little like going to church like you have, um, you're there for a particular reason and you may all be there for slightly different reasons but you're all aware of the transaction that's going to be happening or that you hope is going to happen and I think that naturally Skews it to a kind of self-awareness, and I think you can you can do uh, easy things with that, and you can try to do difficult things with that. I mean, you can make fun of anything, um, or you can try to actually uh, examine what it what it means to be um, to be having that transaction, and what what does what you know how, what role does hope play? What do you hope to be getting out of that show that you're seeing? Uh, what about trust what about cynicism are you i mean we were having a conversation earlier today about you know critics critics what what how how sort of delicate and you know sort of beautiful is an actual open mind as opposed to coming in with an idea of what you what you want to be what what you want the play to be and Mm -hmm. what happens if the play is something else Mm -hmm. um uh, which again, I mean, it's a play, but it's also the world, you know, like, I open the newspaper, and I have an idea of what I want to hear, um, if I don't hear that, am I, you know, what's my reaction, um, we're getting, we're getting bad news all over the place, mm-hmm. um, I think there's something about theater, which is almost invariably about giving people bad news, Um Huh. A, or complicated news uh in a way that doesn't devastate, uh, them, that or doesn't devastate them. them or doesn't or, or <laughs> doesn't shut it down mm-hmm. do you know like even you know tra- tra- you know the best tragedy can be devastating but it doesn't it it's not a closed door yeah and i think we're in we're kind of in that world right now mm. um so uh i mean i don't think fail widow ends on anything like a particularly hopeful note but i think it no ends. but it's not a tragedy it's, it's not an, tra- yeah no. i don't think it's it's not uh it's not an end it's not a it's not uh uh it's not fatalistic
0: at least. no definitely not i think i think there's hope in some ways i think there's hope in the, that that pivotal scene that was that was the most provocative for me is is the one you describe in the hotel room where uh the the producers of the movie are talking to basically the mouthpiece of the Chinese government here. Um, And that compromise that they come to, we're reading maybe in the play as, oh, this is sort of devious and fucked up that this is happening this way. But there also is a hope that, oh, those producers made that happen and we're going to get to see this move. Because also by that point in the play, in your play, the larger play play that has three parts, we want to know the ending of the movie. Right. So because of the way you framed it, we know that we're going to that the movie's going to get made or there wouldn't they wouldn't be telling we, we, the we story be of it. About it. Yeah. But still, you've set up a dramatic tension that I want to know right. how this frickin' mystery ends right. because right. you've actually you've written a good, you know, it's an, it's sort yes. of Agatha Christie-ish right. 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 Uh, kind of mystery thing here. I want to know who killed the guy. Um and we get a pretty satisfying answer, I would say, which is entertaining, and there is hope in the entertainment right, of it.
1: Right, right. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you agree. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, but I, but I,
1: and it's also that thing, I mean, again, it's it's that thing of tragedy. It's like, even, the, the story may be depressing, you know, King Lear may be devastating, but on the other hand, it's such a beautiful thing. And I think...
0: And it's beautiful that we can be devastated.
1: Right, right. And you're being devastated by way of like incredible insight and elegance. Mm-hmm. So there's also mm-hmm. something about the journey of a play where, um, yes, and you're, yeah, there's, a, there's, an, a, there's an appreciation of the sort of wily w- wily problem-solving of the producer, you know, the sort of canny Hollywood producer to come up with a solution to this you know geopolitical fix, um, which, however cynical or um jaundiced it might be um there's no denying that it's not creative and Mm -hmm. and in fact the movie happens yeah um so yes so yeah i mean and 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 you are watching yes you are watching that journey and you're watching also you know you're watching the journey in the theater of your these scenes being created the the transitions these actors are making mm-hmm. from one character to another really just in no time at all um, and that to me is why that you're watching that's that that meaning being manufactured literally out of nothing right in front of you yeah um, that's also why and you're doing it as a, and you're doing it with a group of strangers I think that's you know that's uh, thrilling you mm-hmm. know that's that's like yay culture still exists Civil- yeah. one for civilization um, uh, but I take that pretty seriously uh, yeah. because yeah. I uh, um, I think there's a I mean whatever we're in a world of tons of where there's just so much content uh, but it's you know it's content with with
0: uh, with
1: such weird hid, hidden agendas behind it uh-huh. of, of money of capital of of uh ownership of all all kinds of things uh and 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 yeah these big histories of compromise behind it uh and so i think there's something about the smallness and the handmadeness of theater that is that remains really uh it's really important i mean it is it is absolutely i mean this this is probably sentimental but i think it in this day and age it is absolutely side by side with things like you know the organic market on saturdays and the people who are doing you know artisanal uh, beekeeping and that you know that that those <laughs> kinds of gestures which I think we all are beginning to recognize as the things that are going to at least ideologically save civilization um, are in fact I think just hand in hand with people who are still making theater and going to theater because mm-hmm. it is in fact a non-mass produced um, local individual unique human experience yeah. and that's Again, it sounds sentimental, but I think it's actually really. really, it's
0: really Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please feel free to check out some of our other interviews by going to anchor.fm/theateround. That's anchorfm Our next episode is actually featuring Gordon's wife and Washburn. So if you're fans of this Writing power couple, be sure to check that out too.